Erin Richards, good to have you. Advocate, Erin Richards. Do you like being called advocate? Oh, Alec, no, just go with Erin, please. It's, uh, <laughs> I have the same discussion with, with my clients sometimes. Do you want to be called counsel? Do you want to be called advocate? No, it's a job description. It's not a title. So uh, here, here we call you Erin. But uh, I do know some businessmen like being called advocate. They feel that it adds uh, maybe a little prestige to an otherwise, for some people, very grubby world, which... You've been doing a lot of looking into a very grubby part of business and the stuff that's coming out of the Zondo Commission. We'll focus this week on Bain. I'm still in my story. I met uh, the chairman of Bain, who's based in London. Her name is Orit Gadish, mm. and a, a very striking human being. Uh, a long black hair, very strong face. I looked her up afterwards, summer cum laude, Harvard, etc. That's prestige I, for you. That's prestige. So I asked her what she was going to be doing about Bain's naughtiness in South Africa. And she said, we will definitely do the right thing. This was three years ago. It doesn't appear as though what's come out in the Zondo Commission and their reaction to it uh, is confirming that she was telling the truth. Look, my honest reaction to that is, is I don't know how they could possibly do the right thing if they refuse to acknowledge right from the out that anything has actually happened. Bain's position, as I recall it, since 2018, since after the Nugent Commission, has been deny, deny, deny. At best, they've issued some cockamamie version of a half apology that basically says they were an unwitting participant. So if you're not even willing to admit that there is a fundamental rot within the core of your organization, how on earth um, are you going to fix it? And Bain's a big company, big yeah. multinational based in Boston, consulting for big money yeah. to many companies right. around the world. You might have thought that they would have been better advised on this. I don't know. I mean, I listened to an interview with um, with Lord Hayne the other day, and, and he issued great advice, which is his advice to Bain would be, uh, if you're in a hole, stop digging. And that is advice that apparently they, they're, not, they're not taking. But it, it does seem to me increasingly as though we can all start drawing the assumption that Bain is after the money that's, that's being spent by governments globally. And that's, that's, that's the conclusion that I'm landing up at at any rate. How much of the transcripts on the whole Bain saga, before we get to what Judge Zondo said in part one of his report, how much of that kind of how to make the sausage have you been investigating or, or read through? Yeah. So Alec, I've currently been through just over about three quarters of the, of, of the transcripts. It's over 57,000 pages. I've been reading and reading and reading for, for months. Um, I'm sure you've seen the report that's come out is um, over 800 pages. There is a lot for those of us who are, who are really, really interested in it. But this report has done a very good job of actually summarizing specifically around the Bain issue, what transpired. And it's done so in very damning terms. What's the executive summary of the summary? Well, the core issue is that if we look back to about 2008, 2009, a couple of years after that, SARS really was an exemplary institution. I mean, it was globally ranked as one of the foremost uh, tax administration authorities in the world. And then suddenly, with Tom Moyane's appointment, within a few months of that in 2014-2015, a wrecking ball basically crashes through SARS and decimates the institution. Now, the summary of the summary, as far as Bain is concerned, what they're contending with, is the allegation that actually the collapse of SARS was not just about political interference or maladministration. It was actually primarily 
coordinated and planned many years in advance by Bain, who it looks like they had a concerted plan to destroy that institution. And that's what we're dealing with here. I recall talking to some of my contacts at SARS while all all of this was going on, and some of the last few good guys, Pravin Gordon appointments, who were still there. And they were saying at that stage there were more than 100 executives that had just been taken out. Yeah. It's, that's extraordinary. Well, that's exactly what happened. And I think that that bears testament to the amount of planning that was done on Bain's part. Why it actually took them two, two and a half years before that plan to destroy SARS was executed. And there was a plan. I'm quite happy to speak factually about that because to me, the evidence that's presented in this report is absolutely overwhelming. The speed at which this was executed, to me, bears, bears witness to that, to that planning. Share the plan? I think the best way to do that is actually just to track the chronology of, of, what, of what happened. And I'll, I'm going to stick to the, to the key events. So as I said, sort of 2008, 2009, SARS is flying. Then in 2010, March or thereabouts, if I'm correct, a man by the name of Vittorio Massone arrives in South Africa. And he takes the position of managing partner at Bain. And I think that was the key senior representative of Bain in, in South Africa. One and a half to two years after Vittorio Masone's arrival, some strange things start to happen. I'll break that down into two, two categories. The first is that Masone starts meeting with the president. Now, bear in mind that... Jacob when, Zuma. Mm-hmm. Yes, the former president. When that happens, that's now sort of mid-2012. And there are 17 meetings that happen over a period of two years. Now, bear in mind that when that happened, there was no contract in place between government and Bain. So what business did Masoni have meeting with the president? So that's the first strange thing that, that, that happens. Now, we, we to this day don't know in detail what was discussed in those meetings. All we have access to is some real documentary evidence in the form of emails where Masone happened to record some of the, the context of those conversations. The second strange thing that starts happening in the same time bracket, so we've got the president meeting with Masone 2012 to 2014, same time period 2012 to 2014-15, Bain starts drafting a whole lot of plans and documents. And again, remember, there's no contract, so they, they don't actually have a mandate to be doing this. Bain starts drafting a whole lot of documents and plans and strategies for the reform, and this is important, of the South African economy, all sectors of the South African economy, IT, infrastructure, energy, etc. So not only do these documents disclose plans to transform um, SOEs, state entities, but they want to transform the economy sector by sector with what it looks like the end goal being to centralize procurement. Okay. Now, that's an important point, and I just want to pause there for a minute, because we've seen how procurement gets used to facilitate state capture. I mean, that's what's come out of the Sondo Commission um, in, in no uncertain terms. Now, centralizing procurement is just firstly a daft idea, because it results in bottlenecks. Yeah, wait, wait, I've got to mm. stop you there. Robin yep. Gordon wanted to centralise procurement. Yep. In fact, in his budget about four years ago, he drafted a 25 billion rand a year saving mm. by the centralisation of procurement. And he even had a procurement czar appointed 
who subsequently went off to Standard Bank. Mm. And I remember at the time talking to some very wise people in business and they said, that is a daft idea. Mm. And mm. I, I disagreed with them. Mm. Why do you think it is a daft idea? <laughs> All right. So, so look, procurement is, is, is complicated. And I definitely think that at the moment our procurement policies are, in a lot of, in, in, in a lot of areas, they are far too complicated. And that's also a problem because when they are too complicated – and you have responsibility that's divested in or, or invested in too many functionaries. You actually land up in a situation where you can't track accountability because you don't know who's supposed to be accountable for for what. I run up against this issue in in cases where I'm dealing with um, with labour issues with ESCOM, for example, all the time. You're trying to work out who is actually supposed to be accountable, um, and you can't because the procurement policies are so complicated. So. I am an advocate for simplifying the procurement policies, and I do think that that our procurement legislation needs an overhaul. But centralizing is not a good idea because to vest something in a singular functionary is a problem because then all you've got to do is you've got to corrupt one person That's and it. the ship sails. <laughs> That's okay. exactly what the response was to me. Yeah. Are you mad? What happens if Zuma gets hold of this procurement budget? Yeah. Pravin Gordon is being naive yeah. and indeed the way you've, uh, you've uh, explained it. So just to get back to the whole Bain story. So this was part of the master plan. Yeah. Get all the government spending together. Then we are controlling the, the honeypot and we will then be able to allocate resources in an efficient way, according to our boss. It certainly looks like that. But here's the very disturbing part is that the other, the other thing that's discussed in these documents that Bain was, was developing is something that they called an execution agency. I don't know if you've heard of that. Um, now, the execution agency, according to those documents, was a body that was going to sit outside of the executive, the executive obviously being the president and the cabinet. And who knows who they intended to sit on this execution agency, but it would basically be a body outside of government, outside of the executive, outside of oversight functions. Okay, So no one would be watching what, what that body would be doing. And their role in consulting speak by Bain was supposed to be that they would deal with roadblocks to the implementation of this plan. Okay, So in other words, if there was any resistance, this organization would deal with it in some way or another. Okay, And presumably would also be involved in the centralization of the procurement. So now not only have you got centralization plans, but you're taking what you want to centralize and you're taking it outside of government and oversight structures. And this is the plan that Bain took two years. No wonder they took two years to come up with it because it's masterful. And unfortunately, it worked. Um, so this, this, that's what was unfolding, this plan that was unfolding during 2012 to 2014. And obviously at this stage, Tom Moyane hadn't yet stepped into office. He comes in in September 2014, if I'm correct. Um, so all you had at this stage was Bain, uh, Missoni particularly meeting with the president, with these plans obviously being discussed. Um, do, we ha- do we know if the Guptas were meeting in the or? Involved in those meetings? No. We don't know that. No. Um, now, it, and, and, and that's a good point. It would actually be very useful for us to know who was in those meetings and what was discussed. But that's something, Alec, we've got to let go because we're never going to get that answer. Um, so so this, is, this is the plan up to, um, up to 2014, 2015. We then get Tomoyane, 
who uh, who comes in in 2014, in September 2014. Um, later in December um, 2014, I think it's yeah, yeah, I think it's December 2014. I'll double check. Um, SARS sends out an RFP. An RFP is a request for proposals, which is basically inviting in tenders, and they basically say that they want to restructure SARS. Now, this is strange because why would you want to restructure an organization that's operating perfectly? And the RFP also intimated that there would be a need for an external consultant. Again, why do you need an external consultant when SARS was functioning as brilliantly as it was? It makes absolutely no sense. I mean, government departments don't bring in consultants on a woman a prayer. They bring them in as a last resort when the organizations are in serious need of restructuring. Um, anyway, this RFP goes out and along comes Bain as a tenderer. And this is now in January. Bain gets awarded the contract. No, no mystery to us given the background that you've given us. And then apl- uh, applies its plan, gets rid of uh, the, the, the top executive yeah. or anybody who stands in its way and yeah. really facilitates some grand scheme to plunder South Africa, or well, is, is that is that uh, I, I think, factually accurate? I think you know plundering is I think to to some extent accurate, but I think there's another motivation here that that many of us over overlook, but it comes across very clearly in in the report, and we need to remember that SARS is not just a tax collection entity. Okay, it also had um, when it was functioning in twenty to, yeah twenty. To, 2008, 2009, 2010, etc. It also had very wide um, investigative and enforcement powers. And it had a lot of units operating underneath it that had mandates to work with law enforcement agencies to uh, combat organized crime. Okay, So when you dismantle SARS, you get rid of all that support combating organized crime. What does that do? It reopens the floodgates for that organized crime to continue unchecked. So, you know, this is part of a fundamental part of state captures. You want to dismantle anything that combats organized crime. And SARS was one of those institutions. And it was performing that mandate excellently. And surprise, surprise, Jacob Zuma's son is a partner in a counterfeit cigarette business, which is one of the things that SARS was very strong on. Enter Ethel Williams. Here's a Bain lifer. He's been with the company since 1997, as, as my colleague uh, Michael Apple had the interview with him this week. And uh, he then says he's put in by Bain to have a look at what's going on and to, to kind of rectify if there were any faults. And yet he scarpers because they don't listen to him. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, look, let me first just say that I... I don't think I have respected anyone in many years the way I I respect what Arthur Williams has done recently. We need to give that man a medal. And I think it's disgraceful that, that, you know, we have let him feel so unprotected that he's had to basically flee the country to, to ensure, you know, the safety of, of, of his life. Um, So, you know, Bain has basically come back with some very, very bizarre explanation as to why, uh, Ethel Williams' testimony at the Zondo Commission should, should be ignored. But it doesn't make sense because Ethel Williams' testimony was based on hard documents. 
documentary evidence, emails, performance reviews. You know, so it's not like this came out of thin air. Um, and so there were also attempts made by Bain at the commission to to have um, Ethel Williams' affidavit redacted, which I think they 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 then withdrew. Um, so this has really just been um, an exercise in, in obfuscation on Bain's part. Paul O'Sullivan used a very interesting example. He said you should try the Al Capone approach of trying to nail somebody on an absolute slam dunk rather than putting together hundreds of different charges. If you were the advocate for South Africa <laughs> in this case, how would you attack uh, this? If you were, say, trying to get Bain to fess up and to, and to well, give us compensation as a nation, because the damage they've done is, is almost impossible to calculate. Where would you start? Where would the, the focused areas be? Look, I'm going to give an answer that's probably slightly unorthodox and probably won't be won't be be popular. But at this stage, I think I would just concede that at no point are you going to get Bain to face up. Um, you know, we we all hope that the regulatory authorities in the states are going to do their their job as far as Bain is concerned. Why, why the, do you say that? Is it just too expensive for them to admit? I don't know. I don't work at Bain. Um, but why but, would they do that? Surely KPMG is at least fessed up. Uh, Sir McKinsey sent their managing partners to South Africa, his first assignment after he'd been appointed, to say we're really sorry with what happened. Mm. Why would Bain not do the right thing? Well, I don't know. It's either financial arrogance oh. or they are continuing vested interests. I really don't know. Um, you know, for, for my lot, it's it's not even good enough to have issued apologies. It's not good enough to pay back, you know, some of the money that you earn from some of your, your consulting endeavors. It's just quite simply not, not good enough. But here's what I would caution South Africa against if I was in that, <laughs> in that very prestigious role, um, is I would caution against getting lost in trying to get compensation out of these people, trying to chase them, trying to get people into jail. Because I think, and I could be wrong, that the power networks are so deeply entrenched that we'll be doing that into our graves. Um, so the approach I would advocate for is try and look at the systems and the system's failures and the constitutional failures that allowed us to get here and rework those systems so that we don't land up in this position again. So I would take a slightly different approach. I would say, this is what's happened. We're going to get as much information as we possibly can. And we, instead of wasting all of our resources, I'm not saying we shouldn't, we shouldn't prosecute, um, but instead of spending all of our resources on that, spend a good portion of them on securing our institutions against having this happen again. And you see some of that starting to come through in the Zondo Commission's recommendations, where they're starting to look at, okay, well, how do we actually buffer up our institutions to protect, yeah, to protect ourselves? So that's the approach I take. You can't protect yourself against another Jacob Zuma. Who knows uh, if there's a junior Zuma waiting in the wings? There is, in fact. Duduzani uh, right. <laughs> has got aspirations to become the next president following a similar line. Perhaps Lindiwe Sisulu, the way she's been operating yeah. recently, would suggest that they don't really believe in the Constitution. She doesn't believe in the Constitution and the legal system. And 
there might be another motive for this. Yeah. So how do you how do you protect against that? Okay, so let me start by saying firstly. I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find many politicians who do care about the Constitution. The Constitution politically seems to get thrown around as and when it's it's convenient. In the same breath, I, I also caution against putting too much responsibility for state capture on the politicians. Yes, they are our elected representatives, okay, so fine, but what what the evidence coming out of the Zondo Commission is showing is that politicians are not the primary root cause um, of state capture. It seems as though they are a facilitator, but that the primary driving force is coming from elsewhere, entities like Bain. That's where the money is, that's where the power is, that's where we have to look. Now, as to your question about how do you protect against another Jacob Zuma, I think the question is slightly erroneous because I don't think we're actually trying to protect ourselves against our politicians. We're trying to conquer a deeper systemic issue in the society. And I'm quite a radical constitutional advocate in that sense because I believe that transparency is the key. The Constitution says that we have, a well, we should build a transparent and accountable state. We focus a lot on accountability, but not a lot on transparency. And to me, transparency and accountability are like a wave in the ocean. You can't separate the two. You cannot, in my mind, ever have proper accountability without transparency. So how do we protect against our, against a situation like this happening again? We pursue transparency relentlessly. We want cabinet minutes. We want details of loan agreements that you guys conclude. We want to know what the president's diary is. And we don't want to have to make some request and pay money to get this information. Are other countries run on those lines? Well, no, but other countries don't have our constitution. (laughs) And so we've got to make a choice as this country. Okay, We've got to now say, do we want to do it like everyone else does it, which is not in in alignment with our constitution? Or do we want to take what that constitution says? Do we want to take it seriously? And do we want to pursue um, a transparent and accountable state? And if we do, well, then we've got a hope in the long run of guarding ourselves you know, against against this kind of this kind of capture in the future. Um, but if we don't, you know, I, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't actually see another way around it, honestly. Just to close off with, the Financial Times of London took the unusual step of running a leader, saying Bain's clients should fire them because they are contaminated just by being associated with them. Now that's a that's a very strong voice uh, that perhaps will have some kind of an impact. Is there something similar in South Africa, that a message in South Africa that can be said? Because we aren't seeing a, uh, the same business leadership South Africa. We're quite happy to have Bain as a member until fairly recently. Yeah, true. Um, look, it, it does seem that our response, there's been a lot of outrage, but the substantive response has been has been very weak. You know, And I, for one, would like to know which other state entities is Bain consulting to. I would, I would really appreciate full transparency on, on that. And I would really like to see any, any company, actually, any South African company that is associated with that organization cutting ties 
Um, and not just now, but cutting ties and saying, we are not going to work with you for the next 10 years, because this, this is something where South Africa has got to take, take a stand. Outrage is not enough. Writing articles is not enough. Being angry is not enough. You've actually got to do something. And, and if we don't stand up and cut Bain out, well, you know, then we're basically we're conceding the issue. So it's not emotion, it's rationality. Sorry, what do you mean when you say that? Well, it's not an emotional response, outrage, mm. anger, mm. pay back mm. the money, mm. but doing the rational thing. You need a thing practical, and substantive response. How are you yeah. going to, how are you really going to get Bain to listen and perhaps to fess up? Yeah. Yeah. Hit the pockets of the partners. Look, yes, and, and and this is also where people like you know Lord Hayne are are being extremely helpful here, is placing international pressure on 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 Bain. So if you know we have South African entities standing up, cutting ties with Bain, we have the same happening in London. We have um, Bain being pursued by the FBI in the US, for example. That's the kind of thing that at the end of the day, like you say, puts pressure on the pockets of the partners. So we need a we need a practical we need a practical approach to 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 deal with with not only Bain, but many of the other implicated entities in the state capture soccer. 